because the definition of middle age has changed, right? And they say that middle age is now between 60 and 70 years old, right? So I'm still a young person. I'm excited about that part. But some of you have just been informed. And you're like, whoa, I had no idea I'm middle-aged, right? So, uh, but we go through these identity crises in life where uh, all the hopes and dreams, everything we thought we were pushing toward, we find out that's not who we became. And sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes it's really hard on us. But she had this crushed identity. And if that's not bad enough, we see next a living death. A living death. As she walked alone toward the well, she stifled these thoughts, trying to starve hope and and focus on making it through one more day. She focused only on survival. She constantly told herself, you don't need love, you just need water. Because her life gave her no validation. It was just a place to make it one more day. In a world designed to trample and shame failed people like her. It's entirely possible that she'd been married, used, and abandoned by five different husbands. In her culture, they were possibly husbands only in the legal sense. Marriages of social convenience and patriarchal dominance, generally oppressive, and they exploited the role of women. It's possible that she was in a relationship presently that gave her safe harbor, but with a man who would not marry her, or she was willing to send for the sake of survival. Either way, it was no life. It was a living death. It was just getting by one more day. Now, there are places in the world, and maybe you've been there, where a vast majority of people are trying to make it one more day. And here in our our culture, this is hard for us to get because uh, we really, the poorest of the poor in the United States, are vastly more wealthy than the people in third world countries. And they're just trying to make it one more day. They're just trying to get enough food uh, to make it one more day. And I I heard uh, from a friend in India this week, and it it is uh, just a horrible scene over there. Uh, All the hospitals are completely full, no beds left. Uh, The ventilators, they've run short. Uh, People are sick all over the place, dying in villages and communities. And then the people who aren't sick, they can't work, which means they can't eat, and they don't even have rice for the day. And it's hard for us to relate to this survival thing uh, because we have a pantry, right? Most people. We have a freezer, right? It's unheard of in most places in the world to have a freezer. You go out and you get the food for that day, and then you make it, right? Uh, I remember one time, this years and years ago, uh, we lived in Boise, and my in-laws were moving from Olympia, Washington, uh, down to Meridian and going to move into the community uh, here in the Treasure Valley. And so I flew up to Seattle uh, to help drive their truck down and yeah, to help them move. 
And I'll never forget, we emptied uh, a freezer, and then we emptied another freezer, and we're carrying canned goods out. And some of the cans, like said, you know, jam, 1985, beans, 1989, right? How many of you know what I'm talking about here? And, uh, and there were like half of the moving truck was food. Like, what in the world are they preparing for here? And uh, are they ever going to eat this food? And, uh, you know, uh, sometimes uh, moms uh, feel that way because maybe they grew up without food. And so they're trying to kind of hoard food or keep food. How many of you feel like you have a mom or grandmother, <coughs> excuse me, who may fit in the hoarder category? Okay, I see a few of you out there, yeah. Some of you are with mom here in church today. It makes it very comfortable uh, that, that we're talking about this. But it's crazy what happens in a country where we don't live every day just to, just to survive. And, and for her, it was a living death. It, it gave no value, no validation. But at least it was a place to live. It was food to eat. It was a way to get by in a world designed to ostracize societal failures. And as she walked toward the well, the dust stirred with every laborious step. How many hundreds of midday trips had she made to the well? How many times had she talked to herself about her emptiness, her failures, the husbands that had left her that she had left? and the life she once dreamed of. And you can imagine her inner conversation. Will I ever be loved? Will I ever be lovable? Is there any hope from recovery? Is there any way to put the pieces back together? Why won't someone see me, love me, cherish me for who I am? And those thoughts were interrupted as the distant well came into view, and there appeared to be a man sitting on the side of the well. And at once she thought, he's a man, and because of that, he likely will not speak to me. As she got closer, she realized he was a Jewish man. It was strange to even see a Jew in Samaria. But she was relieved to think, there's no way he'll speak to me being a woman and a Samaritan, a Samaritan. Let's talk thirdly about an intriguing stranger. <clears throat> what happened as she got to the well? Here she is approaching the well, trying to avoid eye contact, but she couldn't help that the traveler's face was unashamedly looking in her direction, right? Kind of like when you pull up to a stoplight and all of a sudden you kind of sense that maybe somebody's looking at you, and the car next to you, the people are just staring at you. You ever had that happen? And then you're trying to think, do I know these people? Are they happy to see me? Do they know me? What's going on here? And uh, obviously, uh, winded and weary from his journey, Jesus was catching his breath, making no effort to avoid her presence, and feeling his cordial stare, she finally stopped and looked him squarely in the eyes. She was wounded, but she wasn't timid. And he smiled warmly at her 
had said, would you mind giving me a drink of water? The man at the well must be out of his mind talking to her, a woman and a Samaritan. But he was talking to her. You want me to give you water? Don't you know that Jews hate Samaritans? And Jesus' face warmed, perhaps with a slight laugh. And he kept smiling at her like a parent on Christmas morning who can't wait till the kids sit down to open their presents. Right? And, and if you've been that parent, let's just open the presents because I'm so excited for the kids to see what they got. You know, some of you know my brother-in-law, Cole Crownover. Uh, Cole, he's never wrapped a Christmas present before because the moment he buys it, he takes it and gives it to the people, right? Like, he, he doesn't even take the time to wrap it because he's so excited for them to open it. Jesus says, if you knew the gift God has for you, if you knew who I am, you would ask me for living water, and I would give it to you. Well, the woman didn't understand the game he seemed to be playing, but she certainly had the fortitude to play along, and she replied, you're sitting here thirsty with no rope and no bucket, no way to get water from the well, and you're asking me for a drink and yet offering me miracle water. Where do you get this living water from? Who do you think you are anyway? Now, I want you to go back up to verse number 4 with me. Look what it says, John 4, verse number 4. And he must needs go through Samaria. Jesus was taking this conversation precisely where he wanted it to go. Because he had walked into Samaria on purpose. He had come to this well specifically to meet this woman in spite of her ethnicity, in spite of her past, in spite of her perceived identity. He valued her, loved her, validated her, and held a beautiful redeemed future for her. Nobody else had ever come close to doing this. And now, she had asked him who he was, which is exactly what he wanted her to do, so that he could turn the conversation from physical to spiritual. He says, listen, this well merely gives you physical water. You drink it, and before long, you're thirsty again. But I can give you a water that will ultimately and permanently fulfill all of your thirsts. And the woman's thinking, what a strange claim. And this time her tone was curious, maybe puzzled. And she said, sir, give me this water. I, I would love to never thirst or come to draw water from this well again. She's thinking physical. He's offering spiritual. And this leads to an utter transformation, which is the fourth part and the main part of our message today. An utter transformation. Jesus compassionately but pointedly drove straight at her heart. He said, go get your husband and come back. See, Jesus had to pull back the surface to expose not just her sin, but mostly 
her wounded heart and her crushed identity. Before her failures could be redeemed and healed, they had to be peeled back and exposed. Jesus wasn't trying to torment her or traumatize her. Before she could accept him as the permanent solution for her soul, she had to be real about her soul's condition. That's what we talked about last Sunday. As the younger son, the prodigal son, fully admitted his condition. He didn't deserve to be a son. And yet the father offered him immediate, infinite grace. But you remember the older son? He thought that he did deserve to be a son. He thought he didn't have any issues. He could only see the problems in everyone else. You know, Jesus can only heal broken souls. It's the only ones he can heal. When she heard the word husband, she felt the twinge of emotion. Maybe she wanted one and didn't have one. Could be that she was done with husbands. But she told Jesus, I don't have a husband. And here she was, emotionally exposed before this stranger. She had expected him to be so many things. When she walked up to that well, she figured that he'd be prejudiced against women, racially bigoted, dismissive, even disdainful. But he was not of the above. He was vastly different from anyone she had ever known. You know, alone was the most contemptible thing a woman in the first century traditional culture could be. Unloved, abandoned, useless. She tried to appear numb to the condition, but it was always there. I'm rejected and I've failed. God doesn't want me and neither does anybody else. In traditional cultures, if you have no one, you are no one. And now Jesus reveals himself as the only answer to the thirst in her soul. But let's go beyond the woman at the well. Because Jesus is revealing himself as the only answer to the thirst in your soul. Traditional cultures were not, and still are not, kind to women. But Jesus was and is. Traditional identity is not kind to outcasts and failures, but Jesus is. And I want you to know that Jesus shattered every social, cultural, religious, traditional, and racial norm to reach this woman. And the gospel not only elevates women, it esteems and values every one of us in a beautiful, God-given, unconditional love and grace, regardless of how broken, wounded, sinful, or rejected we are. The response Jesus gives is miraculous. You're right, no husband. Five of them have come and gone, and the man in your life now isn't your husband. Jesus isn't condemning her. He's exposing her thirst so he can quench it. See, Jesus can't begin to tone the surface of the canvas until you fully admit the broken pieces. Jesus can't heal anyone who won't admit to being sick. 
The woman's eyes grew wide. Five husbands. He knows. I'm not a wife, just a concubine. He knows. I'm a failure and a Samaritan. He's a Jewish prophet. He cares about me, for me, in spite of me. You can imagine her thoughts racing as they continue this surface conversation about cultural theology. And yet her heart leaned in toward the promised Messiah who would resolve all the brokenness in her world, in the world. And imagine the hope that flooded her heart as Jesus looked straight into her eyes and smiled. Ah, yes, Messiah. That's who I am. And I'm sitting here talking to you. Now, I'm not trying to be irreverent, but I sort of picture Jesus standing up by the well, waving his arms and saying, Ta-da! Here I am in the flesh, all the way in Samaria, in the heat, here in love because you matter. You are valuable. You mean the world to me, and I came here right now to tell you that I and only I can save you and take you home forever. And I know what you've been craving with all those husbands, but I'm the husband you've always wanted. I'm the Savior that you and your people have been waiting for. I'm the God you've worshipped with the information you had on hand and the hope you've been trying to bury it's time for you to start hoping again because I know who you are. I know why you're at the well at this time. I know where you are in life. But Jesus says, hope is me, and I'm here for you. And little did she know that Jesus wasn't just there to transform her completely, but also to use her to bring many Samaritans to trust in him. She had no idea she was about to become the first missionary to Samaria. You know, Isaiah had talked about this back when Samaria was still a part of Israel. This is from Isaiah 54. It's so profound. Listen to this. Isaiah said, For thy maker is thine husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. Thy redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. The God of the whole earth shall be called. For the Lord hath called thee, listen to this, this is so beautiful. For the Lord hath called thee as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit and a wife of youth when thou wast refused. God has called all of us in our brokenness. We can only come to him in our brokenness. He can only tone the canvas in our brokenness. What love that Jesus would stoop to redeem us, to care for us at the level where we are. There's an old bumper sticker I used to see around the valley from a church, and, and their slogan was, come as you are. And that's a really neat slogan. Uh, a neat logo, neat slogan, come as you are. Uh, but the truth is, when it's Jesus involved, 
It's come as you are, leave changed. Because when you meet Jesus for who he is, at the point where you are, he changes everything. He tones the canvas. And I have an idea that Jesus couldn't wait to say all this to her. He was so excited to tell her. Everything in the conversation led to that one statement. Every failure of her past, every wound of her heart, every question of her identity was resolved in this. Her whole life had built toward, moved toward, had cultivated in that one single moment. Jesus is Messiah. He came into Samaria in the midday heat to find me. He knows me and loves me. He values, understands, and validates me. He speaks to me, invites me, cares about me. He offers me something no one else can give. My friends, Jesus meets us in our pile of broken pieces and redeems them. Her losing led to finding. Now let's put this all together in the faith challenge. The canvas is toned when Jesus meets us in our loss and utterly transforms that loss forever. See, we need healthy identities, and we actually crave them. But the reality uh, so often is that we all struggle with insufficient and sinful identities. Through all of our identity formation, we are weak beings pretending to be strong. Really, that's what we are. We are vulnerable beings pretending to be invincible. We are worried beings pretending to be certain. Sinful beings pretending to be good. Insecure beings pretending to be confident. Messy beings pretended to be clean. Broken beings pretending to be whole. And fearful beings pretending to be courageous. We are all in the same boat. We're all fakers. We want to appear better than we really are. And we have this public identity that we want people to think about us, but inside we're all broken. And we all need help. And for all the hard work we put into projecting strong selves, we either succeed very temporarily or we fail and restart again. And then every restart leads to another dead end. Why do we continually try to construct something that is beyond our reach? Jesus has told us that every identity we construct on our own will ultimately be lost. In fact, we could get to the peak of what this world has to offer and still lose our own soul. What if we viewed Jesus like the woman at the well did? as the one who is compassionately calling to reckon with the reality that we hide from. We hide behind fake strength and hard work and achievement, but he breaks through and lovingly brings us face-to-face -face with our spiritualized, psychological house of cards. I want you to think practically about this for a second. 
youth is just a decade from loss, right? Beauty is just a decade from loss, right? Have you ever had one of your grandkids show up at the house and they're looking at old pictures and they say, wow, Grandma, you were beautiful. Now, in one way, it's a compliment. Another way, it's like, what in the world are you talking about? Smack your face. I am beautiful. Right? Grandma, you were beautiful. Grandpa, you used to have hair. Right? Grandpa, look how strong you looked. Right? It's all just a decade or two from loss for all of us. And in youth, we feel invincible. But you know, career is one job, one economic crash from being taken away. Strength and ability, one tragedy, one diagnosis away from loss. A relationship, one heartbeat, one rejection away from loss. A desires-driven identity is one conflicting passion away from loss. Every single identity factor that we talked about last week, is temporary. The truth is, wherever you anchor your heart, that's where you're vulnerable. That's where loss becomes inevitable. Enter Jesus and his invitation to find in him living water, a true, durable source of life, peace, contentment, identity, and grace. You know, Jesus is the only safe loss available. You say, well, what's safe loss? Safe loss is based on trust and love. It's the dad out in the swimming pool inviting his four-year-old to jump in his arms. And the four-year-old doesn't want to leave solid ground. Right? He doesn't want to jump. And it's the moment you fall, but you fall into a safer more secure place than you've ever been. It's when you finally relinquish control, only to discover that someone more powerful and loving and generous is guiding your life, and you're safe in his arms. The invitation that Jesus gives is simple. Lose your deepest self to my good news. And let me tone the surface of the canvas for the making of my masterpiece. Lose to me what you're going to lose anyway. And let me replace it with that which you can never find on your own. And that which you can never lose again. The water of life. Let me pray with you. Father, thank you that we could come on this Mother's Day and not only celebrate our mothers, but also reflect on the brokenness that we all face. Every single person in this room is broken. Some of us just put a better face on it. Some of us dress it up a little. But we're all broken. We're all undone. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. And we pray that you would take the pieces of our brokenness and transform us through your grace into that which you have called us to be as children of God. 
And I pray that you would continue to guide us in this series, that we might understand about the identity that we have only in Jesus Christ. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.